This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 210, and we're recording on December 10th. I love some, I don't know, parallelism. I don't know what that is. I'm Amanda <laughs> Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we're coming to you from Book Riot, and I'm fresh off a week of PTO, so I'm a little punchy. Hey, <laughs> welcome back. Just in time to take another week off for the holidays. <laughs> That's the ideal way to do it. It's been kind of amazing. I was thinking next year I might also save up some PTO for December and then just take like half the month off. Yeah, I support it. Great, because I just want to hibernate and like curl up in a blanket and not move. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all right. So how the show works, I don't remember because I haven't been here for like two weeks. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> so this is, as I mentioned, a show for personalized reading recommendations. So if you have a reading recommendation request, you need you know, a gift for someone, or you just read a book that left a big hole in your heart and you need something to fill it, or you need a book club pick or whatever, you can send this to us. You can email them to us at getbookedatbookriot.com, or you can drop them in the show notes on the form on the site. If your question is time sensitive, uh, please put that in the subject line of the email or in big letters in the first line if you're using the form so we can get to it on time. We might email you back um, if we aren't going to get to your question on time or if we have already answered it on the show. Okay, lots of feedback. Um, let's see, we've got something from Jamie, who says there's a series of stories written in the 50s called All of a Kind Family, about a turn of the century Jewish family in New York that have five girls that all look alike, semi-autobiographical by Sidney Taylor. They celebrate Hanukkah and Purim, and the stories always felt really cozy to me. So that's great for people looking for holiday reads. I've got one from Teresa, who says, I have a suggestion for the reader who wanted a time travel book. Um, can't remember if she wanted time travel romance, but she mentioned Outland Outlander, so so her suggestion is a night in Central Park, night with a K, as all the best romances with nighttime puns are. A night in Central Park <laughs> by Teresa Reagan. It, I read it ages and ages and books and books ago, but I loved it at the time. Okay, from Sybil, we have two recs. One for Shana, who wanted historical time travel. I recommend Time It Again by Jack Finney. And for Meredith, who wanted a big scary book, I recommend A Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James. That's a challenging one right there. Scary? Do we feel like that's scary? Well, it was like intimidating. It is intimidating. <laughs> oh, oh, right, right. No, I mean the question, right? The question, right? The question was about, um, yeah, a doorstopper that's hard to get through. I would agree with that. It's in patois, right? If I remember that right. Yeah. yeah. So the yep. reading of it is quite difficult. So that's a good rec. Okay. Thank you, Sybil. Okay. So I'm going to read our first question. We'll get to our first sponsor and then away we will go. Our first question is from Annie who says, I love fantasy and science fiction and I've read the genre for years, but it seems like all I can find is the not like other girls TM character. Unlike other girls, she doesn't like sewing or embroidery and would rather be sword fighting and is always getting in trouble for her unladylike behavior. My question is, where are the stories about those other girls? I love sewing. I'm a quilter myself. I love working with fabric. It speaks to me. Are you going to go fight a dragon wearing nothing but a shift? <laughs> How long are you going to survive a post-apocalyptic winter wearing jeans and a t-shirt? Who is creating the elaborate costumes for the time travelers? The closest books I've been able to find so far are the Backstagers graphic novels and behind-the-scenes manga by Bisco Hattori. All right, before we get to our answers, we're going to listen to our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read, and I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer, always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. 
For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so for Annie, who is asking for science fiction fantasy books about the other girls, as opposed to the not like the other girls characters, Jen, what do you have? I have one from my TBR that I've been meaning to read since I read a review of it that just like, oh, it seems so perfect. And it seems perfect for me. And it also seems perfect for you. It's Torn by Rowena Miller. And it's the first in the Unrivaled Kingdom series. And it is literally about a seamstress who can stitch magic into clothing. What? And it's inspired by the French Revolution. So it's like that historical second world fantasy. And obviously, the French court is an amazing place to be stitching magical clothing for, right? So the main character, Sophie, is a dressmaker and a charm caster and has like lifted her family out of poverty with her beautiful ball gowns and, you know, discreet embroidered spells. And she's been angling for a commission from the royal family, which could, you know, make her career, but then also involve her in the political scene, which is a lot. And because it is inspired by the French Revolution, a revolution is brewing. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that her brother is a part of the growing rebellion movement. And so they are basically, you know, from the same family on opposite sides of this huge political divide. And Sophie is going to have to choose between family and her ambitions. And I like, yeah, what this perfect, perfect. What? I cannot wait to read this book. It's actually so I, like I said, it's the first in a series. And the third one comes out next year. So the second one's already out. The third one is coming. So if you're looking for a series to dive into, this is kind of the perfect time to dive into it. And I'm hoping to get to this one over the holiday break. So again, that's Torn by Rowena Miller. Okay, I picked Spin the Dawn by Elizabeth Lim, which is a YA novel that was pitched as Project Runway meets Mulan. And um, yes, yes. Right. Thank you. Yes. I, I, remember, yes. I remember the moment I opened the package with this book in it and saw that on the like publicity insert and was like, I want 40 of these. Obviously, obviously. I'm going to wallpaper my house with this book. Anyway, so it's about a girl named Maya whose father is a very famous and well-known tailor and dressmaker. Her family falls on kind of hard times. The um, empire where she lives is at war and her she's lost uh, one brother to the battle and her other brother is really severely injured and can't fight or work. So she is working to support the family. And then the emperor calls on her father to come to court um, to become an imperial dressmaker like at court, which would save her, like her family, fix all their problems. But her father is doing very poorly. He's ill and he can't make the journey. Uh, you know, if you've seen Mulan, then you understand where this is going. Um, and so Maya cuts off all her hair and pretends to be one of her brothers and goes um, in her male relative's place. It's a bit of a... She she's not. I mean, she is like other girls. Like she's a young girl who has a, a fabric working or needle working talent. Um, but in this universe, that is really reserved for men. So she has to pretend to be a boy in order to have any sort of fame or professional recognition in order to be a dressmaker or a tailor with any kind of like uh, esteem. So she goes to court and finds out. <laughs> she was not told this. She finds out that 
it's not just a job, it's a competition. So she has to compete with, I think it's 12 other um, tailors and dressmakers from around the empire for this position uh, as imperial tailor. It's very backstabby and competitive. One of the other competitors tries to like cut off her hand because then she can't sew anymore. Like it's all very, like there's a lot of peril. Um, she develops a relationship with the court magician who seems to kind of immediately somehow know she's not a boy. And then that, you know, presents a lot of... Um, shenanigans basically and then there's a final challenge which is where the fantasy element comes in where she has to sew three magical gowns for the emperor's bride-to-be that's how the empire is coming to peace the emperor is marrying the daughter of like his enemies the daughter of his enemy basically and she's very reluctant to uh attend the wedding the bride is and so the emperor is trying to woo her with these gowns and so um maya has to make magical gowns has she been magical up to this point the answer to that is no so like what am i supposed to how am i gonna make a dress out of the laughter of the sun this is nonsense this this literal <laughs> literal nonsense i don't understand i'm supposed to do this uh, but then the magic of it kind of unfolds so project runway meets mulan lots of lots of sewing there's just a lot of sewing and silk work and um, spinning and like a lot of really technical garment making kind of stuff in the book with a dose of magic it's nice so that's spin the dawn by elizabeth lim amazing (laughs) so much reading to do Mm -hmm. as always okay our next question is from grace who says recently my cis male partner and i have decided that we are going to get married in the new year we're both feminists atheists and working hard to decrease our consumerism and live in environmentally friendly ways so we are avoiding the wedding industrial complex as much as possible uh as a big reader i often go to books during major life steps to seek advice and guidance but i'm not seeing myself represented in many books about marriage I've previously read Committed by Elizabeth Gilbert and really loved that, looking for something similar that's a thoughtful and positive nonfiction book on marriage that may offer advice and insight to those who are genuinely working to have an equal and apparently kind of radical partnership that isn't defined by the trappings of a wedding or organized religion. You know, just like, this is small <laughs> Just upsetting all kinds of oppression in your marriage. That's great. I, like, appreciate yeah, this same. question a lot, a lot. Uh, what did you pick, Amanda? I, I had no idea. <laughs> I had to go to the contributors for this one. Um, as, a, as a very unmarried person, I have no experience personally with this idea. So um, the contributors, I went to them with this question, and there was a lot of crickets for a while. But we came up with some good ones. So Allie, our contributor Allie, recommended... Something New, Tales from a Makeshift Bride by Lucy Nisley. It's a graphic memoir, not a graphic novel, it's an autobiography, about her experience with getting married. And it starts, the thing that I appreciate about this book is it's not just about like her wedding. It starts several years before her wedding, I think four years, when she's with the man that she marries, they break up because they disagree about whether or not they want to have children. And then she spends several years being single, like dating around. Um, and then her ex changes his mind about whether or not he wants to have a child. And so they get back together, they get married, and then they go on this journey of having a wedding that isn't like you know, the typical, I don't know, TLC, say yes to the dress kind of wedding. Um, It's complicated further by the fact that Lucy is bisexual and feels very erased as a bisexual woman in the process of marrying a dude, because it just is like this heteronormative performance um, that she doesn't want to participate in or pay for. So and like, or make her family and friends travel to participate in and pay for. But she does want to have a ceremony and her parents are putting a lot of pressure on her to have a more traditional than not kind of ceremony. So it's really about her, this like, I feel like almost very similar struggle to the one you're going through of like, how do I have a ceremony that commits me to my partner in a way that represents my values without giving in to like all of this consumerism and a cake is $12 at the grocery store. But if you say it's a wedding cake, it's 1200 and like why? And all of that kind of thing that you start to experience when you're planning a wedding and realize that it's all kind of a racket and you don't want it to consume your whole life. So uh, it's really funny. All of her graphic, not well, they're not, none of them are novels, actually. I think all of them are memoirs, but all of her books are super, super great. They're funny. They're really well illustrated. She has a, a a really like kind of, I don't even, like sweetly biting is the way that I would describe it kind of <laughs> voice that I appreciate. Um, so that's something new, Tales from a Makeshift Bride by Lucy Nisley. I'm glad you found something wedding specific mm. because I have a partnership specific one for you, but I did not, it does not touch on weddings. My pick for you is Drop the Ball by Tiffany Dufu. And theoretically, this is a business book, but I read it and was so blown away by how 
Dufu digs into her marriage and partnership and like the the things that she uncovers about the expectations and assumptions she doesn't realize she has and is acting on and the ways those come out in her partnership and like stand in her own way. And then also the ways that her husband like is just not aware of some of the things that he is doing and like meeting in the middle, watching the two of them meet in the middle and work through these what does an equal partnership look like issues is just so encouraging and insightful and amazing. And like, I am like not getting married, but I am dating like a cis white feminist dude. And like one of these days, I'm going to convince him to read this book <laughs> because I really think, I really think that if you are in a male female relationship, with most men, there are just things that you're not going to understand that they haven't experienced. Mm. And there's things that, like, we uh, women raised in the West in particular, like, have not really understood about ourselves. And this really digs into them. So Tiffany Dufu is a, like, career person. She, um, you know, is very happily married to her husband. You know, she has her first child. She goes back to work and, like, finds herself sobbing in the office bathroom on her first day back. And it's because she is trying to do everything. And she's you can't help but fail when you try to do everything all the time. And so this is her process of unpacking, like, what does it mean to be a mom and also dedicated to her career? What does it mean to have an equal domestic partnership with a man as a woman? What does it mean to be a woman of color in, you know, the society that she's in? There's all of these big, deep questions. And I think that like I said, like for anybody who's in that kind of relationship, there is so much food for thought and discussion here. And like it would make a perfect read along to get through together. And then also it's interesting to see her career advice because she's coming sort of from the like, you know, there was that whole lean in movement, which has all kinds of problems. And she's highlighting a lot of those problems and sort of finding her own space in that. Like, what does it mean to be an ambitious woman uh, question? So there's a lot going on here. But yeah, I really think this is a solid one for those purposes. So again, that's Drop the Ball by Tiffany Dufu. I think you could really apply a lot of that book to a wedding, like especially the wedding Ooh. planning part of it, because so much of wedding planning is about the bride and is mm. women are the bride is always the one expected to do all the planning. And it's almost a trope, right? That like dudes so don't true. care about what happens. To yeah. Wedding. But yeah, I think that would be helpful. Alrighty. Next question is from Wynne, who says, my sister Ruth, as a chef slash caterer, she has read every memoir, biography, history, technical, and cookbook known to the universe. What she hasn't read is any fiction that immerses food within the story. Please don't go for the obvious choices, Dandler, Hesser, Reichel, etc. What I'm looking for is a variety of genres or authors that have great food descriptions as part of the story. Literary fiction a plus, and something crazy like sci-fi can be fun too. Take your best shot. Sci-fi is so crazy. Um, okay, I picked Natalie Tan's Book of Luck and Fortune by Roselle Lim. I love this book so much. It's so feel-good and fun, and the food in it is amazing. Roselle Lim is a Filipino author, Filipino-Chinese author who immigrated to Canada as a child, and a lot of this book is set in Canada and then San Francisco's Chinatown. It's about a girl named Natalie who hears of her mother's death. She's living in Canada. She hears of her mother's death, and she returns home to, you know, handle the affairs or whatever. Um, she has hasn't spoken to her mother in almost a decade because her mother refused to support her career as a chef. Like her mother was very insistent that she not pursue that line of work. And her mother was also agoraphobic. And so since Natalie would not come home and her mother could not leave, they just have not seen each other in almost a decade. Um, and so when she comes home, uh, she's really surprised at how downtrodden the neighborhood, uh, this part of Chinatown that she grew up in, has become. She runs into a really predatory real estate agent who's trying to gentrify the neighborhood as quickly as possible and move all the people who've been living there for decades out. Um, and then she's, like, shocked to find out that she has inherited her grandmother's restaurant, which is below her mother's apartment. The re Her mother closed the restaurant um, when her grandmother died and didn't had like really bad memories about it, didn't want to run it. And that's why she had such an emotional reaction to Natalie wanting to run it. Um, and so it has a, a big element of magical realism in it. Uh, there's a neighborhood seer who tells Natalie that like what she should do is be a chef at, in this restaurant, like come home, reopen her grandmother's restaurant, 
Um, she's a talented chef, so she knows how to do it, help revitalize the neighborhood. And in order to do that, she needs to take three recipes from her grandmother's cookbook and cook them to her and, get, and cook them for her neighbors in a way that will help them with their like personal struggles. So like the it's almost a, um oh, what's that book? Uh, water for chocolate. Is that what it's called? Like water for chocolate. Like water for chocolate, right? Where she can like put her intentions into the food and then the magic mm. of the food kind of happens to the people she gives it to. Um, so you watch that uh, kind of unfold. Like, is it going to work? Is this magic real? She, there's also an element of romance. The all books, the recipes that she's cooking from her grandmother's cookbook are on the page and sound amazing. And of course, there's food throughout the whole thing. Like every chapter, I think, start if I remember correctly, starts with her feeding someone or herself. Um, there's a really grumpy cat character. It's just a nice, like, oh, I love it. And it's so tasty. Everything in it so tasty so that's natalie tan's book of luck and fortune by rose Lim. amazing i want to eat all the food now okay so my pick for you is the chef by marie ndi and this was translated by jordan stump and it's chef with two f's and an e on the end because apparently that is the french way to signify a female chef but you still say it chef as far as i could discover so this book is a literary fiction about food. And as you might guess from the title that I just explained to you, a female chef specifically. And it's amazing in the strangest way, because the whole book is sort of narrated by this great female chef's, one of her kitchen workers, sous chefs. I don't, anyway, unclear what exactly his role was, but he worked with her and like believes himself to have been the closest person to this very reclusive woman. She didn't give interviews. She's, you know, has a daughter, but was kind of had a very complicated relationship with her daughter. And this guy is, you know, clearly being interviewed by a reporter after this woman's death about her and her life. And he's like, well, you know, everybody else is going to tell you lies. I'll tell you the real story. And then you're, and then he proceeds to tell the story of this woman's life, but you also find out how his own life has gone off the rails. And it's really fascinating because he is a little bit of an unreliable narrator in certain ways, which is super interesting. And also, he the the sort of oral st- storytelling style of this is so immersive. So it just sort of meanders, but like I couldn't stop reading. I was like, oh, what's like? Where are we going to go next? Like, where there's not a clear plot, you know, uh, thrust. There's not a linear like this happens and then this happens and this happens. It moves around, but in such an interesting way, and you get like her, you know, impoverished childhood. And then you get her first job where she was actually just, you know, sort of like a housemaid for this couple. And then um, their cook leaves on vacation. And so they're like, oh, you'll just cook. And that's how she gets her start. And then she, you know, takes over and discovers this talent. And then her wrestling with, you know, being a mother and also having her own restaurant and how to balance those things and, you know, how to give, like love in a way that's hard for her because she is very solitary and reclusive. It's just fascinating. And the way that it talks about food isn't like there's no recipes in here, really. And sometimes you're not even sure what ingredients have gone into the dish that they're talking about. But the way they talk about the experience of making and eating food is almost spiritual in a way. It feels a lot like like a lit fic version of a chef's table mm. episode i guess is how i want to say it and i'm i'm personally am here for that like i really enjoyed the reading experience and it is kind of a slow burn and you can read it over however long you want but it's just oh it's just so good uh so again that's the chef by marie ndi translated by jordan stump And our next question is from Jessica, who says, I have been adamant for years that I don't like romance books. They're too mushy and not for me. Then somehow was talked into reading Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. (laughs) Now I like romances, question mark, question mark. Obviously, I need help and direction. LGBT is a major plus, but not required. I've tried the kiss quotient and did not like it at all. When I first came out, I read I Sing You Home. It was okay, but not great. I really like the wit and character building in Red, White, and Royal Blue. Please help. Amanda. Yeah, you do. (laughs) 
best book ever. It might be my favorite book of the year. I don't know. I haven't looked back at my spreadsheet yet, but uh, it's definitely up there. Okay. Um, I picked The Right Swipe by Alicia Rye for you, which is the first book in her Modern Love series. I'm reading it right now. I'm like halfway through it. I'm obsessed with it. Um, it is... I picked this one because Red, White, and Royal Blue, it has a lot of like snark and sarcasm, and so does The Right Swipe. And there's also that element of like technology built into the plot. The Right Swipe is very much about dating apps. Red, White, and Royal Blue is very much based on emails. So... I thought with those kind of similar elements, you might really be into this one. The Right Swipe is about a woman named Rihanna, who is the head of a a kind of like Bumble, Tinder, whatever dating app. Like she's invented it. She is the CEO. um, And she does not have a very robust dating life herself. She likes to kind of, you know, whatever, hit it and quit it. This is what she's into. So she has a profile on her own app that she uses when she's traveling to have like one night stands. And then she's open to some something more than that, but is not pursuing something more than that, if that makes sense. She's a little bit cynical, a little bit hard inside. Um, And so she has a one night stand with a guy who she really connects with. Like, it's a great night. She really connects with him. Literally, (laughs) I get it because it's an app. (laughs) And he asks to see her again. And she opens herself up and like agrees to see him again. And then he he stands her up. And so she's like, writes him off completely, blocks him on the app, moves on. Um, And then when the book opens, she's attending this uh, conference for tech, like, people. um, And she sees him. She, like, crashes a competing dating app's event um, in order to, you know, like, see what they're up to, really. She's, like, doing espionage. (laughs) Doing espionage! That's what's up. That's a technical term, right? Um, And then she sees the man come out on stage as their new spokesperson, and it turns out his name is Samson. He's a former professional football player, and he is the nephew of the woman who invented this competing app, and she had no idea about any of this, like, who this guy was. So she sees him up there on the stage and is, like, overcome with rage that this man who would dare to stand her up is now working for her competitor. And he he sees her in the audience and recognizes her. And um, you find out his backstory, why he stood her up. It's a very, like, understandable reason. And when he went to go contact her about why he did that, um, she had already blocked him. So she, like, storms off super, super mad. And he's like, no, love of my life, come back, you know. Um, and they... <laughs> shenanigans ensue like there's business stuff that and like secrets and corporate espionage and his aunt is this very eccentric lady who walks around wearing uh what do you like hats with the veils on her face and doesn't come out in public very often um and every character is just like hilarious and quirky and a little bit strange the whole cast is people of color which i love um and i just i just thought it was super fun very witty um, and I think if you like Red, White, and Royal Blue, which everyone does without exception, then you will really be into this. So that's The Right Swipe by Alicia Rye. Oh, love it. Uh, we should give a trigger warning, though, for an abusive ex oh, yeah. in that one. Putting it in the show notes. So good. Okay. So, yeah, I picked... Dating You, Hating You by Christina Lauren, because I was thinking about, like, you know, the enemies to lovers setup of Red, White, and Royal Blue, and you said you liked the wit and the character building, and Dating You, Hating You, I found so entertaining. I really did like the way the characters were developed, and I am not, I don't read a lot of contemporary romance, and I also don't read a lot of, like, corporate contemporary romance, and I was surprised at how much I loved this book. The setup is that Carter and Evie meet at a mutual friend's Halloween party. They're both wearing, like, Harry Potter-inspired costumes. And so they're like, hey, fellow nerd. Um, and But they just, like, sort of hit it off. Nothing major happens. And then they run into each other again because they are both high-powered agents in Hollywood, like film agents, and their agencies are merging And now there's only going to be one job for the position that they both have. And the, you know, head honcho is pitting them against each other. So, like, they're attracted to each other. They super enjoyed talking to each other. They both are professionals who really care about their career. So now what's going to happen? And they proceed to, like, prank the hell out of each other at work to sort of undermine each other in terms of like vying for this position but then also because they are so like laser focused on each other their chemistry and you know connection builds and builds and so it's really 
really entertaining. Like, it's so fun. And I loved the arc of this. I was like, I don't know how this is going to get resolved. I really loved how it got resolved. And there are some, like, full-on, like, spit-take, laugh-out-loud guffaw moments. I won't tell you because I don't want to spoil anything, but, like, it's really amazing. And the Hollywood setting actually worked for me, and I was surprised because I didn't think I was going to like it. But it is just, it's so much fun. I think you'll dig it. So, again, that's Dating You, Hating You by Christina Lauren. And now it is time to hear about our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. At She wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. All right. Our next question is from Eliza, who says, hello, I'm a teenager who's very confused about a lot of things. Well, okay. <laughs> I love that introduction. Some examples are why people like mushrooms, how the current political climate came to be and figuring out what crowds I identify with. At the moment, I'm looking for some books that offer different perspectives or books that would help me or that would make me buy merchandise and rant on Instagram. That is just I love everything about this question. <laughs> right now, my reading tastes lean towards memoirs, YA fiction, dystopia and sci fi. Some of my favorite reads are The Giver, Yellow Star, The Hate You Give, Bad Boy and Ender's Game. I'm quite tired of books that have the main protagonist uh, having a boring and predictable romance with some random side character. I would love books with interesting romances or no romance at all. In addition, I would love books that include complex villains. Okay, so I there's a lot going on here. I'm just gonna keep going. Um, I kind of fixated on complex villains, interesting romance, and for some reason, merchandise. <laughs> I don't know why, but that's the thing that stood out to me. So I picked Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo, which... Out of any book that exists on this planet in the year 2019 has produced the most like fan art that I have personally like stumbled across on the internet. Fan art and like fan merch that you like Etsy stuff you can buy. Like people love making things about Six of Crows and all of the cast of characters. Um, the book is set in her Grisha trilogy universe. So it's like this, I don't know, kind of 18th century Russia kind of setting, except um, it takes place in Ketterdam. So it's more like an Amsterdam kind of setting. Uh, and it is about a band of merry teenagers who are all criminals and come together to uh, perform this heist of breaking into this like impregnable prison complex in order to steal something or someone. Hey, uh, And it would be like the greatest heist ever 
to have happened in the history of heists and the payout, the monetary payout for uh, this, you know, band of criminals would be substantial enough to where they could all kind of pursue their own individual dreams. The collection of characters are bad. Like they are not good people, right? When, when you talk about complex villains, they're not the villains of the book. They're the antagonists. Um, Kaz Brucker is the main character, and then he has like a collection of a found family, basically, of other orphans and, you know, unwanted castaways of people he's collected who all have really great skills who help him perform these kind of heists and like run this criminal underworld. Um, but they're thieves. Like they are thieves. They are, a lot of them are very violent. Um, but, you know, what's the difference between a violent person who is good? And a violent person who is bad. Often it's just like who the protagonist is in the book, like who the author has chosen to focus on. So there's a lot of that kind of thing to consider. Um, it is very lush, hence all of the Instagram and like merchandise uh, and Instagram content about it. Uh, the world is really well well built. It's like very sensual. You can see the sights and smell the smells and hear the sounds. It's funny. All the characters are hilarious. There are a lot of romances going on because these are 17-year-olds. So there are a lot of people who are like, Will they, won't they, probably not, maybe a little bit, but also we might die in the meantime, so why don't we put a pin in that kind of stuff happening. Um, <laughs> it's all, But it's all really interesting. Um, and it's not boring. None of them are side characters because they're all there like with each other. And I really love the found family kind of trope. So that's Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo. Yeah, my new goal in life, Aliza, is to introduce you to the Avatar The Last Airbender fandom <laughs> because that's what I decided to do. And also, just a quick note about mushrooms, that they are delicious if cooked correctly. And correct by correctly, I mean either sautéed with butter or roasted. <laughs> that is like, those are the correct ways to cook mushrooms. Feel free to add me about that. Um, okay. So I picked The Rise of Kiyoshi by F.C. Yee and Michael Dante DiMartino. And this is a novel that takes place in the Avatar, Avatar The Last Airbender universe. But if you have never seen the cartoon show, either Avatar The Last Airbender or Legend of Korra, it's fine because F.C. Yee does an amazing job of introducing you to this world. So you don't need to know anything to pick up this book. And if you do know things... It is such a delight. It is the story of a young woman named Kiyoshi who is an orphan. And she lives in this world where, like, once in a generation, basically, there is a person who is an avatar who can wield all four magic elements, like earth, fire, wind, and water. And most people, uh, well, really, anybody who can wield an element can only wield one. So the avatar is very special. And they are trying to find the avatar of her generation. And she has taken, like, the test but failed it. And this other person took the test and they believe that he is the avatar. So she's a servant in this household. And she – this is, like, not a spoiler. You find out that she is actually the avatar. They just don't know it because she doesn't look like what they're expecting her to look like. She doesn't – her magic doesn't perform the way they're expecting it to perform. Like, she's just not – the shiny, shiny magic user that they're expecting. And it's all about her journey to sort of come into her own and, like, figure out who she wants to be. Because also there's all these structures around the Avatar that she wants absolutely nothing to do with. There's political shenanigans going on. There's war. There's raiders. There's pirates. There's people looking to use the Avatar for their own ends. Like, there's all of this stuff going on. And and she actually is best friends with the person who is supposed to be the Avatar. So she's got a lot of conflicted feelings about a lot of different things. And this adventure has so much going on. There's amazing friendships. There's found family. There's basically no romance. There's some really creepy, interesting creature villains, and then also some very interesting human villains. So there's a lot going on. And it's the first of a planned two-book series, so there will be more when you're done with this. And then if you like it and you haven't already, you can watch all the cartoons. They're so good. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Sorry. Get really excited about it. And there's like a, there is a lot of fan art and merchandise mm -hmm. and like all the things that you could think of. There's graphic novels and comics. There's just everything. It's fantastic. So, again, that is The Rise of Kiyoshi by F.C. Yee. Okay, I will stop talking about Avatar The Last Airbender now. Now we will hear from Sarah, who said, I recently reread Maurice and then watched the Jane Eyre miniseries and got me thinking about romance and forbidden romance. I haven't read much romance, but I'm into the idea of reading a romance with a forbidden 
romance with a servant or governess or whatever. Can you recommend any good historical romances to scratch that ish? I know almost nothing of the genre. have only read Courtney Millen and some ill-advised reads back in middle school days. LOL. Uh, P.S. I just realized Fingersmith fits this ask, but rest assured I have read it and watched the amazing movie. Amanda, what do you got? So many things for this one. <laughs> Yay. Okay, I picked The Governess Game by Tessa Dare, uh, which is fairly recent. I think it came out uh, last year. But this is about a governess. It's an accidental governess, though. Um, her name is Alexandra. She is a quarter Filipina. Hey-o. Um, And she has grown up in the UK. Uh, you know, it's a regency, so time period, that kind of time period. And she is like a clock worker. That's her job. She doesn't have, you know, family money of her own or whatever, so she works. Um, she goes around to these very wealthy households and sets their clocks to what is it Greenwich time or whatever um and this is how she makes her money she shows up at this dude's house his name is Chase he's not a duke or anything but he will be he's like the heir to a dukedom um to set his clocks he has uh, two orphans <laughs> to set his clocks sorry to hey <laughs> she's going to say something you know what I'm saying Elbow, elbow. Um, oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> he is uh, he has two wards. He's caring for two young orphans who are like totally wild and keep scaring off their governesses. So when he opens his front door one day and finds this woman looking for work in front of him, he's like, "Yes, he did." Well, he is, he's waiting for a governess to show up uh, to like interview. So he assumes that's who she is, uh, and he like pulls her in the house. And is like, "Yes, you're work. You're hired. Go do this thing." Um, and she's just kind of very confused about what's happening because she has seen him before. She ran into him in a bookstore months before this happened. And he's a total rake. Like, he's very famous in London society for being very handsome and wealthy and, you know, all the things that rakes usually are. And she had a run-in with him at a bookstore, literally. Like, he knocked her stack of books over and she stumbled through the whole interaction. Like, kind of made a fool of herself and has been daydreaming about him ever since. And now she's in his house and he's asking her to live with him to teach these kids. And she's not a governess, governess at all, but she agrees to do it. After she meets the girls and realizes, like, what they're – they're just wild. And, like, they need somebody who can teach them in the ways that they need to be taught, not just with, like, books and sitting down and discipline and all that. Um, And, of course, like, she now lives in the house with this super handsome dude. She's very pretty. It's a romance. I'm sure you can imagine what happens after that. Um, But there is resistance. Like, she does work for him. And that's – they both recognize that that's not appropriate. And the power dynamic is addressed. Like, he is very aware that he's taking advantage. That he could be, you know, if he pursued her, that it would be taking advantage of the power dynamic. And he's, like, really careful about that. Um, Also, like, what are people going to think? Like, all the stuff that comes along with that uh, employer – governess employer servant kind of trope it's just so fun all the books in this series are great they're all about kind of quirky strange women who work except for one one of them is a lady but all all the rest of them in the series have like jobs and the things that they have to do when they fall for men who are not always appropriate for them based on social standing or because they're terrible or whatever um and i love it so much so that's the governess game by tessa dare so i know you asked for historical but I was thinking about forbidden romances, and I wanted to give you a contemporary option because I think that it has all of the really intense tension and like, oh, this is wrong, but right, but wrong. Like, it has all of that that you're looking for, and it handles it in such a beautiful way. Oh, like, makes me mad. (laughs) (laughs) It's The Professor by Charlotte Stein. And so... Esther is the main character, and she is a, I think she's a graduate student. It's been a minute since I read it, but she's a student, and she has the hots for her very handsome professor. And she is, like, she's a very average student. Like, she just kind of, like, you know, bullshits her way through her classes. And one day, and she her real passion is writing erotic stories in her free time. And one day, she was supposed to have turned in a paper to this professor, and she turned in one of her erotic stories oops. instead. Yeah, big oops. <laughs> And he's like this very foreboding, you know, closed off, like really handsome, but like definitely like not warm or approachable person. And so he like calls her to his office and she's like, oh, God. (laughs) And he's like, he's like, this is better than any paper you've turned into me. So you're going to keep writing these. And she's like, uh, what? Record scratch? Like, what? Um, And they then, like, she, so now she's writing erotic fiction for her hot professor. And it is such 
a bananas setup and development. And it gets it actually goes to some dark places like this. This is a very silly kind of funny premise that gets really intense and goes to some really dark places as they try to navigate like because, you know, teacher student like that is fraught, like talk about forbidden. And the book doesn't take that lightly or like use it just as like in a fetishy way like it is super steamy but it's also super thoughtful about all of the complicated and dangerous power dynamics involved in this relationship and i so appreciated how they resolved this issue like i just it was it was stunning and i think i cried a little bit at the end if i recall correctly like it's, it gave me a lot of feelings so yeah this is this is not generally my jam personally but like when an author does it so well it's impossible not to be impressed and this i will never forget reading this so again that's the professor by charlotte stein i am looking this up on my libby app <laughs> right now <laughs> Shout out to Sarah McLean, who originally recommended it to you. Oh, she's so great. Mm -hmm. All right. Our next question is, our last question is from Rija, who says, I'm currently looking for a tragic story. The more depressing, the better for a cathartic experience. Themes like suicide, self-harm, any kind of assault and abuse are totally fine. Anything that would leave me in tears is just what I need. I have a month-long vacation coming in a few weeks, and I'd prefer a lengthy book that's not too slow-paced. The way that you spend your vacation and the way that I spend my vacation are very different. <laughs> that is some intense reading choices. Okay. No judgment, though. No, no judgment. I'm just, like, amazed that that's the thing that you want to do. Uh, people are so fascinating. Okay. Go with God. Um, I, all the trigger warnings are coming for these books, for both of them. I'm looking at our agenda right now. Mm -hmm. um, my book has uh, trigger warnings for harm to children, child sexual abuse, and suicide. It's Miracle Creek by Angie Kim. And let me tell you about tragic and cathartic and depressing. The book opens with a small child being really graphically murdered. And I am, I know, and I'm like a hard pass for that kind of thing. And and yet it's still, I could not stop reading it. I could not stop. So it's a um, courtroom drama about a miracle submarine. So, and I'm like air quoting this. So these are above ground hyper- Barrack chambers that people go into to get really high intensity oxygen breathing treatments that are thought to help treat a variety of ailments. So everything from like infertility to autism to all kinds of things. Um, and so the book starts with this court case about a group of people who have gone into the hyperbaric chamber, which they call the Miracle Submarine, for their treatments. It's a big, you know, cast of character. Most of them are kids there with their moms. And there's an explosion and the, what you're in, well, I don't want to tell you exactly how they die because it's like gross, but uh, one of the kids in the submarine dies in a very graphic way in this explosion and you read about it. And his mother is arrested for setting the fire and for trying to kill him. Um, and another mother in the chamber dies as well. And so the courtroom drama is about her trial and whether or not she did it. So the chapters switch back and forth from different characters' points of view as you discover who has what secrets and how that wraps into who actually committed this crime that resulted in this child dying. And let me tell you, I could not... I have never been so compelled to finish reading something so unpleasant. Like, there is no one likable hmm. in this book. No one is is likable. They're all very flawed. As they're just humans, you know? You are in deep, deep into everybody's messy, 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 messy crap. And, uh, and a child who's autistic and has no ability to defend himself in any way from any of this drama dies. And it was so hard to read, and I just couldn't stop. She's so good. Like, she's such a good writer. And Angie Kim, the author, is like a miracle submarine mom. Like, she has experience with this community. Um, and she's also a trial lawyer. So, like, she's bringing all of her personal experience to bear here. It's also an immigrant story because the owners of this treatment facility are Korean immigrants. Their daughter is Korean-American, um, as is the author. And so there's that experience put into the mix. And the way that this book portrays what it's like to be a mother, a parent, but specifically mothers, because mothers have way more pressure put on them, the mother of a special needs child, and the things that you're expected to give up and do for your child, and, like, what that can make you do. Like, people completely believe that this mother killed her kid because, like, the pressure is too great. It's just, I don't, whatever. I don't need to keep going on. But it's amazing it's an amazing book i don't know that it's it's not going to take you a month to read it took me like a day to read but that's because i couldn't stop like i just couldn't stop and somebody who 
reads at a normal pace and doesn't have like this and isn't just going to sit down and read all day um obsessively it would probably take longer than that but it's just amazing it's amazing so that's miracle creek by angie kim yeah my book is also on the shorter side it is i think even less than 200 pages but it's bigger on the inside <laughs> and it's gonna give you all the feelings you can read more. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and you can read more than one book during your vacation hopefully uh, i picked heart berries by therese marie myatt and this comes with trigger warnings for self-harm domestic violence and struggles with mental health so Therese grew up on a very small Indian reservation um, in the Pacific Northwest, I think British Columbia uh, and the Seabird Island Indian Reservation. And she had a very dysfunctional upbringing. Her mother was a social worker who, like, repeatedly got involved with prisoners. Her father was an abusive drunk, but also a brilliant artist. And, you know, she really went through it as a kid. And then she herself grows up, has children, but is um, hospitalized uh, with a diagnosis of PTSD and bipolar 2 disorder. And her life is very dysfunctional. Um, She is not able to care for one of her children who ends up in the foster system. She has this really complicated and like dysfunctional relationship with a man that you hear about. And everything is just, it is, it is rough. It's rough. And what I felt while reading this book was how, how, like, what Maya is trying to do is she's writing this from the hospital. So she's trying to write her way through her trauma at, like, I think a therapist's recommendation. And so she's in it. Like, I think we get a lot of stories like this from somebody who's already out of it and they can look back and have perspective and see like okay here's where I was and then this is what I went through and now he's here is where I am but Therese Myatt is in it pretty much the whole time I mean there are like moments of perspective but you get that really raw intense experience of trying to unpack all of these incredibly difficult you know, relationships and and mental health diagnoses and, you know, her position as a mother and as a daughter. And, oh, man, it's just a lot. And then, of course, you know, she is Native American and how that plays into it. And so it's there's just a ton going on here. And it is incredibly raw and uh, and just so beautifully written. It's so beautifully written. And it isn't an easy read. And I think there is a lot of catharsis if you struggled with any of the things or, you know, things that make you feel the way that she felt. It doesn't have to be the same situation. Obviously, we can share feelings even if we don't share circumstances. Mm. And yeah, I think it's I think it's an incredible read. And it is a lot about catharsis because that's what she's working towards. So again, that is Heartberries by Therese Marie Myatt. And that's our show. On that happy note. <laughs> what a note to end on. I know. Whoops, whoops. Ooh, I should have rearranged those questions. Whatever. It's fine. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. Please go leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And I am on Twitter as Jen IRL. That's Jen with two N's IRL. And on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye.